Hello, and welcome to Scary to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. I have an announcement, and I would really like you to please not skip this, as this affects many of my listeners. I've recently been faced with a sort of challenge when it comes to trigger warnings. I'm so happy to do them. I think they're a great tool to be able to skip things that are going to bum you out and ruin your whole day. However, since this is a horror podcast, often a lot of the stories I receive have many twists and turns. Therefore, I've noticed sometimes my trigger warnings can be a bit spoilery. I'm going to experiment with something, and that is I'm going to be placing the trigger warnings in the show notes of the episode. That way, if you know you have particular triggers, you can choose to take a glance at this week's warnings, and if you'd like to be totally surprised, then you can do that as well. I want all my listeners to stay safe and happy, even if it is horror. So if you take a look at your show notes, and if you don't know what show notes are, I mention them a lot, but it's basically when you uh, choose the episode of the week, usually you can swipe or it's right there on the front page of your podcast app. And it's little notes about what this week's episode, a lot of people put what it's about. I usually just put the name of each story and the author, and I list all of my uh, sources that I used for the episode. Um, So take a look at that. You'll notice that each story now has its own little section after it labeled TW, and that is where you will find the warnings. Not every story is going to have warnings, Um, at least if if there is one that you think of that I should have thrown in there. Let me know. In fact, this is an even better way because now after the fact, it's way easier for me to throw in an edit in the show notes than it is for me to throw an edit into an episode. Um, I had someone reach out to me today. Thank you so much about I've never done a trigger warning for child death, I don't believe. And they said that that bothered them a lot. I totally understand. So if you ever have like something that you feel really gross about and I didn't put a warning let me know. Shoot me a message and I will add that to the show notes. Thank you all for your patience and understanding. I really hope this is something that works for everyone. I just, like I said, I really want you all to be safe and happy and I hope this is a good thing that I'm experimenting with. All right, now onto the show. I happened to have two submissions recently that I thought went beautifully together. Both are sort of dusty and futuristic and They both gave me a sort of Mad Max type vibe. So first up is full of the twists and turns I mentioned earlier that we so love as horror fans. This is Unreal by Ken Kreckler. The desert is hot. So... I ride to a place where I order a drink, and the bartender looks just like me. I can tell she notices because her eyes begin to fill with tears and questions we both want to ask. But the moment passes, and knowing wouldn't matter anyway. The whiskey drains clean from the glass in my hand, and I leave without any trouble. The air outside is old and thick with smells of maybe copper. The sky is red and starless as I open my satchel to unfold my map, fighting to keep it from flapping in the dry and gusting wind. Nearest town is a five days journey. I have enough water to make it through two. 
I ride north, remembering cars. They were so much faster, so much more dependable. Nowadays, they're hard to find. I took one to a party once, back when you could see the moon. It's silent as we drive home from the Rutherfords, streetlights cutting through the windows, moving over us in waves. The shadows are deep and stark, and sometimes, if I'm lucky, I can catch my husband's eyes, but usually I can't. That was fun, I say, staring out the window. They have a beautiful home. Patrick nods. My fingernails are painted, and the dress I wear is new. They certainly know how to throw a party, I say. Yes, says Patrick, and he flicks the turn signal, clicking left and looking far away. I think Sheila had a little too much wine. I swear she was flirting with that piano player. I'm surprised Bill didn't say anything. Patrick turns onto our street, and now we're nearly home. (sighs) He wants to leave her. What? I had lunch with Bill at work last week. He's not happy with Sheila. Just hasn't told her yet. I shift uncomfortably in my seat. But they seemed... I mean, it really looked like they were going to make it. Pulling into the driveway, Patrick says quietly, You never used to think so. I look at him. What does that mean? The kids are asleep by the time we walk in. Patrick pays the babysitter without a word, then takes off his blazer and excuses himself to the upstairs. The sitter's name is Karen, and she needs a ride home. But I'm tired, so I say I'm too drunk, and I call her a cab. I wait with her until it arrives. It's summer on my porch. I'd like to smoke a cigarette, but Karen's still in high school, young and impressionable. Making conversation, Karen asks, How was the party? I sigh and think on how to answer, eventually saying, It was a party. Just uh, some silly party. Whose party? The Rutherfords, I say. Bill and Sheila Rutherford. Patrick knows Bill from their work. At the lab. A long pause. Crickets chirping. A car honks, far away. Hesitantly, Karen asks, Is Mr. Campbell okay? Who? Patrick? What do you mean? She shrugs. The sky above is cloudless and clear. (sighs) He's... He's been a little different since the accident, I say. It's hard to explain. Karen looks like she wants to reply, but the lights of the cab pull her away. And minutes later, I'm smoking, sad and relieved and tired and drained. 
later in bed with Patrick. I kiss his shoulder, rub his thigh. I whisper that I love him, and I start to do the things I know he likes. You smell like smoke, he says, and turns away. The room is still for a long time. I want to cry, but don't. One day, while the kids are at school, the doorbell rings, and it's Bill Rutherford, unannounced. It's the middle of the day, so he must be on his lunch break, because his ID badge is still clipped neatly to his belt. Just in the area, he says, and blinks a lot. Him drinking coffee and me drinking tea, we sit on separate sofas, chatting. I say something about my plans for the day. He mentions visiting family with Sheila next week. There are stammers, awkward pauses, and I'm almost to the point of arbitrarily inquiring about the wine he served at the party when he asks, out of nowhere, how I'm feeling lately. But I'm not really sure what he means. He leans forward, and suddenly, I know that this is why he's here. How's Pat? I cocked my head. There's been some distance. He frowns, looks at the coffee table. I'm concerned about Pat. About you and Pat. We're in counseling, I say, my shoulders tense. Don't tell him I told you. I know about the counseling, he says and sips more coffee. Was it his idea or yours? What? Carefully, he puts down his mug and folds his hands, looking at me all the time. Intently, he says, Was counseling his idea or yours? Dr. Norton jots something in his notebook. Tell me about your day-to-day, he says. Arguments, moods, how have you been feeling? Isolated, I say immediately. I I don't know why. Sitting next to me, Patrick folds his arms, stares at the floor. Dr. Norton keeps writing. Patrick, anything to add? Nobody calls me Patrick, says Patrick. No one's ever called me that. Dr. Norton clicks his pen. Mr. Campbell, he says slowly, you've been coming here nearly six months now, the both of you. You came here because you're having problems. You came, you said, because you wanted help. Patrick isn't listening to any of this. I can tell. Dr. Norton removes his glasses. Do you feel I'm taking sides? No, says Patrick earnestly. She doesn't have a side. Patrick used to be a scientist. Back when things were fresh and new. He had such high hopes and dreamed so big, but dreams die from time to time, and I think his died in the accident. In a way, I died with them.
It was snowing, and the shiny car ahead spun out while going faster than it should. We hit hard. There's a spray of glass across my face, and I can still hear how it sounded. Like the scream of something seeing daylight for the first time in its life. The taste of salt in my mouth. The pull of the seatbelt bruising my chest. And later, there were sirens. Lights and sirens all around. After that, we took our time to learn how to walk and feel and think the way we did before. As doctors came with clipboards writing special notes we weren't allowed to read. We lay side by side in separate beds or gurneys, and every day I'd ask why I was healing so much faster than my husband. And every day I was ignored, until we were both well. On the day we were discharged, we took a taxi to the house where Patrick's parents lived, The kids came bounding toward us down the driveway of their home, eyes beaming. I hugged and held both boys that day and felt that everything was right. Bill escorts me through a long, sterile hall, telling me I shouldn't be surprised, telling me I should have figured it out by now. I'm in love with you, he says, and he starts to show me things I'm not supposed to see, with walls of glass and plastic spheres that hold within them each a life. For years, says Bill, and while he walks, he starts to cry. I'd have done anything, even after your accident. I see the way Patrick looks at you now. He can't handle what we've done. But I can. And you deserve to know. One foot in front of the other. I pretend not to stare at the fleshy forms that spurt and spasm in the bowels of every masterpiece I pass. Pushing out from each of them their eyes or nails or stomach or spleen. Each eye is blinking outward, focused on us as we pass, begging for freedom or death. Later, Bill shows me a file. It has my name on the label, followed by a line of numbers. And certain things I think, I feel, begin to disappear. Bill is explaining things, in love with me. He talks for a long time. When I first held my children, they seemed so light and fragile. There were tears in someone's eyes. But it seems that someone wasn't me. I have memories of meeting Patrick at a mall when we were still in school. The smell of my first car, the sound of my parents arguing downstairs. Our lives are made of memories. Imagine if they weren't. Patrick's life was making copies. That was his job. 
His grants were based on the idea that our livers and kidneys and hearts pumping blood could be formed inside huge, ungodly spheres, and that these spheres were such that educated men would watch them grow into maturity. There were people sick with diseases that couldn't be cured or riddled with tumors that attacked their most important parts. And tumors don't care how death affects you. Tumors don't care about babies or spouses or hopes you cling to late at night. To save your body, you'll need spares. This was Patrick's work. Saving people's lives by making copies of them. When the first me died in the accident, he used his skills to make a replacement. Standing in the lab, Bill closes the file. He says he wants to be with me. He wants to be together. Finally, I start screaming. I go to a bar. My drink tastes far fresher without all the world's lies in it. A stranger sitting next to me is loosening his tie. And when he turns to ask where I'm from, the question makes me laugh. He tells me his name and smiles. I like when people smile. It's nice. In the bathroom, I let him come inside of me, because according to my file, all my insides are for show. I go home to find the children, happily playing down the hall. They drop their toys to hug my waist. I remember loving them, but when I feel their skin touch mine, I know they're now just things that are alive. Patrick sits in his green recliner, his eyes focused hard to one side of a television commercial we both know he isn't watching. He says, Bill called, and sighs, as though his job tonight is done. I take the kids upstairs for bed. I make sure they brush their teeth. They beg for a bedtime story the same old book I haven't really read a thousand times. Their voices are such shrill, pathetic things. So tiny. So weak. Patrick goes to bed the way he always does. Drunk on wine and whiskey. Filled with dreams he can't have anymore. And the air is still and the stars are somewhere bright above, and the world feels so far away. Later, as Patrick starts to snore and fidget in our bed down the hall, I kill both children with a pillow as they sleep. Their gasps and squeals are muffled as they thrash about, and I am singing softly, letting them struggle feeling what's left of them drain away. It is so easy as they die. Everything is easy when you're free. 
I linger there a moment more, then stand and move to our bedroom, sweeping up the keys to Patrick's car along the way. He's still sleeping in the darkness. I bend down to kiss his cheek. Then I leave. I never see him again. This was years ago, when there were cars and babies. The world had problems even then, but nothing like today. And because my cells don't age the way they're meant to, I've lived long enough to see the red fires sheathed in blackened clouds that churn above a desert, and that desert is getting bigger. It joins with others every day. Patrick and his children are buried in that desert. Almost everyone is buried there now. There aren't many of us left. But occasionally, I'll see a woman somewhere, pumping gas or buying food. She'll look like me, with different hair, maybe younger, maybe not. Her eyes will glance briefly at mine, and then quickly glance away. Sometimes I'll be riding, and I'll see little girls without parents, stumbling through sand. Their faces just like mine when I was young. Their eyes are dry and red. Their stomachs growl unheard, and their minds rumble with a terrible lack of wonder, because nothing's how it should be. And the end of things is all around. When this happens... I'm reminded that there may well be a number on or in my body that I've simply never seen. I'll guess how many others came before me, whether Patrick had discarded them or maybe they'd escaped. I'll wonder if these others feel as free as I do while they watch the world burn away. And I'll want to cry, but don't. The sun is breaking in the east, and I drink what's left of my water, curious if I'll make it to the next town over in time. Curious, but not worried. The horse I ride will die soon. When it does, I'll get another. That's what we do when we lose what we love. We replace it. We stop crying. Crying is only for real people. I haven't cried in years. I also wanted to talk to you about another show that is a favorite of mine. I know I've mentioned this show before, but let me give you a more formal rundown of Stories with Sapphire. It's hosted by Sapphire Sandalo, creator of the Something Scary web series and podcast, and paranormal expert on the Travel Channel's Paranormal Caught on Camera. This show provides a multicultural perspective on the supernatural through stories, interviews, and poems. From heartwarming tales of deceased loved ones communicating from the beyond to terrifying accounts of demons following your every step. 
Sapphire created the show to celebrate supernatural experiences of all kinds and to offer insight on the paranormal from a Filipino perspective, something that she believes is severely lacking in the paranormal community. I agree. She shares stories and insights that might change the way you think about reality. New episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. She also streams live drawings of her thumbnail artwork, and she's a fantastic artist, you guys. She has the scariest artwork sometimes. On Twitch, head to storieswithsapphire.com. That's sapphire, S-A-P-P-H-I-R-E, where you can find more information about the show and also submit your own story. I even actually submitted my own story, so look for that in an upcoming episode. Now, back to the show. Our last story of the evening is by Lydia H., and it's called Dirt. The worker's jacket was too big for Cav's slim, 17-year-old frame. He had rolled up the sleeves to make it more form-fitting, but after an exhausting day of work, it hung off his body like a dirty rag, scuffed up by the dirt, rocks, and minerals of the dig site. It was early evening, and Cav was glad for the end of his shift. Cav clapped his hands along the seam of his pants, which also hadn't escaped the harsh conditions of digging through mounds of dirt and granite slabs. He watched the dust rise from his hands in billowing clouds, and float up towards the roof of the colossal cavern, reminding him of the distance that separated them with the surface of the earth. They were hundreds, thousands of miles underneath the earth's crust, and even in the large cave, Cav felt a little claustrophobic. Maybe it was the early stages of the strain infecting him. Cav shivered with the thought of the deadly disease from the dirt that would surely spread to all the workers at the dig site. The strain had infected his entire family, poor farmers who were in contact with the dreaded dirt every day. This job would be the last nail in his coffin. Soon, he too will die in this dirt prison. Cav! The scratchy shout caught Cav's attention and he turned to see Jensen sliding down the generator lights with his prison cap in hand. The worker jumped down, kicking up more dirt that rose up around his boots and added another thin layer of dust to the dingy worksite. Have you seen the old man doctor around anywhere in the last few hours? Cav shook his head. I haven't, but ask Wilkes. He directed his thumb towards their makeshift kitchen. Jensen tisked and shook his head, seemingly with disgust. The fat lard we call a cook was probably too busy stuffing his maw to spot the old cripple. No point in wasting my time, yeah? He kicked out a crate for Cav and himself and sat down with an exhausted sigh. Each hand held a knife that flashed in the artificial light as he twirled it around his fingers. Playing with knives seemed to be one of many of Jensen's odd habits. The ex-convict liked to walk around at night and jump into conversations unexpectedly. It didn't help that the man was a bit strange looking himself. He had more metal in his ears than dancers at the markets and spoke with a strange dialect from the Rissian prisons. Jensen seemed to be a bit young for the adventures he boasted of, maybe around his early twenties. The cap on his head was the only piece of questionable evidence that the man had indeed 
gone to the notorious prison a year ago, with the year 2085 stamped on the back in faded black ink. Cav glanced at the man as they sat in almost comfortable silence. They were tentmates by age, and Cav felt closer to him than anyone else in the workforce. Jensen was aloof, bitter, and shady, but intriguing. Earning his respect had been an accomplishment for Cav. Jensen seemed wary of everyone else at the dig site, and non-stop slander spewed from his mouth both behind their backs and to their faces. Cav opened his mouth to voice a question that had been bothering him since Franco's disappearance. How long do you think Al is going to keep us here? Before he gives us the go-ahead. Referring to the big, outspoken man they called Boss, Jensen looked up at Cav's question and scratched his stubble with the edge of the knife. He furrowed his brow. I reckon the boss man will make us dig till we find Frankel, or that legendary mine. Possibly both, even if it means he has to dig with his bare hands himself. Jensen shook his head and gestured towards the dig site. With the drills down, heaven knows how long that'll take. The premonition of staying in that dratted cavern never to see the light of day again, silenced the two young men again. For a few minutes they sat, with Cav trying to take in what seemed to be the inevitable. The phrase, too young to die, came to mind, but toiling endlessly at the digs had aged him beyond his years. Cav stared down at his folded hands, now rough with calluses and leather tough, like an old carpenter's. He sensed Jensen staring at him, and looked up to meet the man's eyes. We're going to die here, Cav, Jensen croaked out. Cav swallowed the lump in his throat and nodded. Hey, what are you doing here, not at the digs? Al, the stubby man who ran the site, rounded the corner of the med tent with a flask in one gloved hand. We are holding down these crates, Al, Jensen said, rolling his eyes. Al grunted and took a large gulp of whatever was in the flask, tipping his head back. Jensen looked on, bemused. New habits, yeah boss? That's what they call a coping mechanism? Jensen mocked. Cav winced at the jab, glancing at Al to see his reaction. The boss just glowered at Jensen, wiping his beard with the back of his glove. Mia Wilkes are playing a drinking game. We take a shot every time we hear you say something idiotic. Al emptied the last drops of the flask into his mouth and tossed it at Jensen, who lifted his leg to let the flask thump against the wooden crate he was sitting on. Al nodded his head towards the dig site. Get! Jensen scowled and chucked the flask at Al's retreating back, before standing up and picking up his shovel, heading off to the digs with silent anger. Cav watched his co-workers leave before standing up himself. The camp was relatively quiet. The large metal drills sat at the dig site like colossal tombstones that no one dared to run, especially now with Franco gone. They had been searching for the young engineer for the last couple days, but the job had been long and tedious, and the crew had all but given up. Morale was low, and a hopeless end seemed to be in store for the workers. Sighing, Cav headed towards the kitchen to help Wilkes prepare what was left of their rations. Dinner was tense. 
Jensen and Al had exchanged several hostile glances before Al declared the food unfit and stormed off to his tent, grabbing a bottle on his way out. Omar, a foreign worker and a man of little words, joined Jensen, Cab, and Wilkes at the coals of their dying fire. Jensen had coolly stared down Wilkes as he flusteredly shuffled away from the ex-convict with his empty plate in hand. The pudgy cook had practically inhaled the contents of his dinner, given the tiny portions, and sat in discomfort, glancing around at the rest of their plates and sighing every couple minutes, expressing his displeasure. How was the crippled old geezer? Jensen directed his question towards Omar, who seemed to be looking after the doctor. The huge man merely shrugged and grunted. Stranson hasn't left his tent since we dug up the statue? Cab inquired with surprise. It was strange for the old doctor to act in such a way, seeing that he was more intrigued by the digs than anyone else in the workforce. Stranson claimed to be on the brink of discovering a cure for the strain, an impossible feat in everyone's eyes except his own. The doctor was elated to hear about the dig expedition, and joined for the sake of continuing his research. In their search for Franco, they had dug up a small wooden statuette, presumably an artifact from other civilizations. Stranson had fainted upon seeing it, and refused to leave his tent, mumbling about some impending doom. Mm. Jensen scoffed and spat into the fire. He's sure as day that some voodoo mumbo-jumbo is gonna float out of that little thing and curse us all to hell and back. Old geezer's probably just going nuts from the strain. Jensen leaned back in his chair, staring into the dying flames. Cav and Omar quietly chewed on their food. Gone was the lively chatter from the first couple days of the expedition when the workforce was full and young workers were eager to talk about their shifts at the digs. The team had dwindled down from 50 to a measly five, four with Franco missing. Cav remembered each one of the 45 graves that were dug for the workers that had contracted the strain early on. A chilling thought of who was going to bury him or if he would be the one to bury everyone else came to mind. First them, now us. It's only a matter of time. Soon enough, we'll all drop like flies. Jensen stood up and tossed the paper plate into the fire, watching it crumple up as the little flames consumed it. He stood there for a couple seconds, unmoving, before disappearing into the dark like he always did. It wasn't until the embers from the fire had gone out that the workers headed back to their tents for a night of restless sleep. Cav woke up the next morning to shouts of anger. The first thing he noticed was the absence of his tentmate, which immediately caused an uneasy feeling in the pit of his stomach. The shouts continued outside as he attempted to rub the sleep from his eyes and hastily got up, leaving the warmth of his sleeping bag and rushing to put his boots on before stepping out of the tent. Once outside... It was clear to Cav who was causing the disturbance, and it worried him even more when he heard Jensen's throaty Rissian dialect and Al's deep bellow. 
He picked up his pace, and he ran through the camp to the digs, kicking up dirt that would surely coat the tents in a layer of dust as it settled. His breath came in ragged intervals, and he slowed down as he neared the dig site. Cav heard footsteps behind him and turned to notice Omar emerge through the dust, who evidently had the same worry as himself. Together they jogged down to the piles of dirt. A stone dropped in Cav's stomach as he saw two figures wrestling amid the towering drills. The nonsensical shouting from before became clearer phrases as the two men tumbled around in the dirt. Idiot! Shut your mouth before anyone else hears you! Jensen roared, attempting to place Al in a headlock to cover his mouth. I killed Franco! I killed him! Cav stopped so abruptly that he almost tripped. Al's words seemed to have taken the breath out of his lungs, and he felt his chest tighten with disbelief. He couldn't seem to process the sentence in his brain, and just stood still, like a statue. Jensen had given up on trying to silence the boss, and kicked him to the side, just now noticing that they had an audience. He gestured towards the man who was hysterically rolling around in the dirt, mumbling something about Franco. The strain's gotten to him, he said grimly through gritted teeth. He was headed down here to dig up Franco when I caught him trying to power up the drills. Nearly knocked me out with a shovel. Omar nodded and walked over to Al, who hadn't stopped talking to himself about Franco. With an easy grab, The giant man picked up Al and tossed him over his shoulder, ignoring his desperate attempts to wriggle away and headed to the med tent. Cav knew what would happen next. Stranson would put him into a drug-induced coma to lessen his suffering, and they would wait for him to die. Put me down. Put me down right now before I do something I might regret. You hear me? Al's shouts of protest didn't cease as he was carried away. Jensen watched the scene with Cav, chest heaving from the fight. Cav turned to look at the damage. Jensen's work clothes were coated with dirt, as was the left side of his face. A small stream of blood flowed from his temple and dripped down his chin. Jensen wiped at the blood with his grimy sleeve, smearing it even more on his cheek. You okay? Cav questioned. (sighs) Yeah, I'm Dandy. Just worried about boss men over there. Jensen shook his head. I'll head over and see if the old doctor has anything for my head. He started to walk over to the med tent, shaking his head as if trying to clear something from his mind. Wait! Cav was bursting with questions about what he had just witnessed, and he knew Jensen might not be so keen on answering them later. He jogged to catch up with Jensen, tugging on his sleeve. What happened? How did you catch Al? Jensen merely shrugged him off and continued walking. It was clear that the man wasn't in the mood to do much talking. He seemed to be in deep thought muttering to himself and scratching the edge of his chin as he slowly made his way to the med tent. Cav kept up with his long strides, 
waiting for Jensen to say something. He was about to give up and head back to the tent when suddenly, the man turned around and grabbed Cab by the shoulders, catching him by surprise. His eyes were wide and almost ecstatic. Listen to me, Cav, he said hoarsely. Go back to the tent and pack all that can fit into two bags. We're leaving this place tonight. With that said, Jensen turned around and entered the med tent. Cav was trembling from anxiety as he struggled with the zippered backpack. He had gone all day without talking to Jensen, but when early evening came, he found himself at their tent, packing two bags. His hands shook as he forced the bag closed. Part of him didn't believe Jensen, but hope of finally leaving the cavern led him to trust his co-worker. Cav looked at his watch. Night shift had only started, which meant he had a few long hours before he would sneak out to find Jensen. He leaned back into his sleeping bag, staring at the ceiling of their tent. The entire day had felt like a dream to him, almost like he was walking in someone else's body. No one had worked at the digs for more than a couple hours, even though they knew Al was delirious with strain when he talked about digging up Franco. Something about potentially digging up a corpse had kept the workers away from the digs, and with Al under the strain, there was no one to yell at them to get back to work. It was almost like the group was slowly but surely starting to fall apart. Psst! Jensen poked his head through the tent flap, nearly frightening Cav. Are you ready? It's my shift now. Let's go. Cav wordlessly grabbed the two bags he had packed, handing Jensen one, and followed his tentmate as he stepped outside. He zipped down the front of the tent before jogging to catch up with Jensen. Where are we going? And how exactly are we supposed to get out of this place? Cav whispered to Jensen as he took long strides through the camp, almost silent except for the slight hum of the generators. The drills, of course. Jensen grinned for the first time that day as they reached the dig site. Cav looked at him with disbelief. But they don't run. Jensen shook his head, still grinning as he led them to the nearest drill, the one that Al had been caught trying to run. Cav slowly followed, realization starting to dawn on him. They run all right. They just need a little kickstart. Jensen smirked and rubbed away the grime from the side hatch of the drill. From what I've seen, this one is nearly silent when it runs. Jensen swiftly broke the lock on the door, forcing it outwards. Inside, Cav could see the metal stairway that would lead to the control center of the drill, cloaked in darkness. He shivered for a strange reason, not from the cold, but from an odd feeling that traveled up his spine in chills and caused his hair to stand on end. Didn't Al have to break the door to try to get inside? Cav questioned slowly. Jensen shook his head, pulling his arms through the straps of his backpack. Bossman had a key. He grabbed the flashlight at his side and flicked it on, 
shining the beam on the metal stairway of the drill. Quit stalling and let's go. Cav watched as Jensen stepped through the doorway of the drill. Something in his gut was telling him not to follow. He tried to grasp a sense of things when the truth finally clicked in his head. He softly gasped. Al didn't really go under the strain, did he? Jensen paused inside the drill at Cav's question. He was only drunk, since he drank so much that evening. But why would he talk to you about Franco? Cav trailed off in his question. Jensen still didn't move, standing with his back to Cav. You! Cav realized. He stared at Jensen, now with different eyes. You told him something about Franco, and convinced him to come here to try to take him up, didn't you? Cav remembered how prone Jensen was to walking around at night. The truth from his words had frozen Jensen, who wasn't denying any part of it and simply stood there, breathing heavily. He wanted a way out, but you didn't know how to run the drills. Cav's voice shook with accusation. Al wanted to dig up Franco. He was drunk out of his mind and without knowing it, showed you how to start up the drills. Cav dropped the backpack in his hand and let it fall with a thud on the dirt. When he wasn't valuable to you anymore, you attacked him to make it look like he had the strain. He only hit you with the shovel because he was trying to defend himself. Cav didn't know how these words were pouring out of his mouth, but it felt relieving to finally understand what was going on. All the suspicions, all the little things that had irked him were coming together, and he wondered why he never saw it coming. His only friend at the site wasn't someone he could trust. Why? Cav finally voiced the question that had been bothering him. Because, Cav. Jensen finally croaked, turning around to face him. In the half-light, his face was shadowed, almost creepy. Sometimes, you gotta sacrifice to get what you want. Cav shook his head at the absurd answer. I don't understand you. I don't think I ever have. All you fed me was lies, and I ate them from your hand. He looked up at his former friend. I won't go with you. Good luck. With that said, Cav turned around to head back to camp. He didn't know what he was doing, but he knew it was right. Even if he died here in this unorganized camp, suffocating with the strain. It would at least be a fair and truthful death. He wouldn't pawn off the untruths of others to help him survive. He only realized he was being tackled from behind when his face hit the dirt in front of him, his breath getting knocked out of him. He was stunned. Jensen wasted no time in flipping him over 
clutching his shirt by the collar. The man had a different look in his eyes, a wild, untamed look, as he leaned forward with gritted teeth. You are not going anywhere, kid, he hissed. You're just like Franco. Didn't want to cooperate. So, I sent him to his grave. Cav gulped as Jensen grabbed one of his knives and brought it over his head. The man was smiling, almost happy with the thought of stabbing someone who refused to adhere to his commands. Goodbye, Cav. He spat and brought the knife down. There was a commotion nearby, and a gunshot, and Cav felt a strange tightness in his chest as Jensen was knocked off of him. The ex-convict fell to the ground beside him, limp hands still clutching the knife. Through blurry eyes, Cav could see rivers of blood on the ground, but was unable to tell whether it was Jensen's or his. Thanks for listening. Remember to check out Sapphire's super scary show, Stories with Sapphire. And if you download Best Fiends, feel free to send them a tweet or a Facebook message that you heard about them from me. That would be totally cool of you. Also, thank you so much to all of you awesome Instagram people who started adding Dollar Shave Club after I posted that picture of my legs and several of you asked me what razor I use. (laughs) That was very sweet of all of you. Now, time for Patreon shoutouts. Thank you so much to Sheila Williams, Lindsay Watt, Hannah Marai, or Marais, Allison Futit, Futit, Penny H, and Nicole Porter. And I am so sorry for those names that I know I just butchered. <laughs> now, line up so I can hug you each individually and tenderly. Remember to follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, and Reddit. You can email me your submissions or just say hi at scarytosleep at gmail.com or scarytosleep.com. That's the website and it has a submission form. So either way. All right. I love you all. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. <laughs>